Aspire to dream. Aspire to achieve. Aspire to lead. Aspire to forge your own path. I'm Josh Booth, and on behalf of the Aspire team, welcome to Chapter 6. In Chapter 6, Ed Crawford speaks to the enigma of risk versus reward. Most entrepreneurs are gamblers, but some, intoxicated with the thrill of higher risk, high reward, risk too much, with all good intentions, but it can end badly. Ed Crawford cautions, never cut corners, never cheat, never bet the ranch. So many people that are going to listen to this are going to be listening closely to see, hey, what's the secret here? What's the key? What does Ambassador Crawford know that I don't about entrepreneur behavior, entrepreneurship, how to, how, where does that magic come from? And we're up to the point where this is the early 90s. Mm-hmm. You had uh, moved up. We started talking about when you were making steel pails and just making enough to run over and sell that's them. Ni- that's 1964, we, 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 <laughs> right. we, we were talking. Now we're right. in 1992. Right. Okay. And you're a little past the steel pails. Yeah, way past the steel pails. Okay. <laughs> and now you're up to where you managed to get a seat on the board of Park, Ohio, a big public company here in Cleveland. Now we're stepping into what would be the next 20 years. So we're just... We're not even at, we're just building the Crawford Group. So it's at the end of building the Crawford Group. So 1992, the Crawford Group is really doing very, very well. Very healthy company. Very healthy company. But a private company. But a, but a private company. And then I got infatuated with the idea of a public company because every time I went to borrow money from the banks, and you know, if you inherit money, that's one thing. If you don't inherit money, you have to make it. And it's kind of like, like you have to make it. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a little different than somebody gives it to you. Right. It's a little it, harder. It, a little harder. <laughs> it comes sometimes very slow and it can go very fast. <laughs> my point is you can't make that many mistakes. And it goes back way back to my mom. What are the other people thinking about? Okay. These are fundamental things that we've talked about in the past here. Every time I had to borrow money, I had to sign all the documents and guarantee it personally. Personally, now, you so be, you were always on the line. Always on the line. Now, now if you want a detriment, you want something to hold back people, is the fact that you have to sign those notes and sign them and sign them. I went down to the federal building to get the, that loan that led me to becoming the, the Ohio's small businessman in the year 1969. I was signing signatures for an hour and a half. For some reason, they don't have all these issues with public companies because there's a reporting this and reporting that. And it's like the inference is a private company's not run fairly and squarely. They're always doing something and they can't, you know, run the company and follow the governance and guidance and everything else. I wanted to do all that correctly. I wanted to do this. Cor- I wasn't going to build this thing twice. I say, well, maybe I'll look at this public health company. It's selling for $5 a share. At one time, a, a very fine, healthy public company. Absolutely. Now in Broken. dire straits. Yeah. And they hadn't made money in five years, and there was a lot of tax things that I liked about it. They were in the container business. Now, here we go back again. I spot Park, Ohio, because they're in the middle of, they're making steel pails. You're back to steel I mean, pails. It's not over. <laughs> so I said, if I can get that company, you know, 
I could be back in the container business, but more important, this could be something I understand. They can't sell it because it's the only thing that's making any money. So start buying stock. It's sooner or later, it's got to be great. So actually, I started at $2.86 the first shares. Then I get to 5%. Now, as soon as I get up to 5%, my lawyers say, you have to get a file that you are a 5% holder. No problem. I follow. And then we had a famous uh, article that says, you know, if Mr. Crawford, if Mr. Crawford is going to pursue a seat on the board of directors of Park, Ohio, we're vigorously going to oppose that. Right. Now, this is because all the alarms went off right. when you had to file for the 5%. Right. And that scared them at Park, Ohio. And they're a big public company. And right. they're thinking, well, what the heck is this guy trying to do here? And then where did he come from? Right. We thought we got rid of that guy a long time ago. Right. But we didn't, we, <laughs> Who's Ed Crawford? What's he doing back here? <laughs> he's back again. You know, <laughs> right. they, I thought he's gone. He's like gum on a shoe. <laughs> yeah. I can't get rid of well, him. Well, the answer is, I never thought about Chase going after a board seat. It, it was them that decided to have the board the boards that challenged me for the, the... They gave you the idea. They gave me the idea. So I started pushing and pushing and pushing and calling them and wanted to ask for the negotiation and talk and so forth. They were kind of ignoring me. I wasn't being what they are today, corporate raiders and so forth. I knew I could do something with the company because I understood it. Right. Okay. And they had other companies in the rubber business there that were losing money. I had spent 20 years building a Crawford around fixing and building and rebuilding small companies and borrowing the money from the banks. Again, we'll get to the bankers later. They couldn't get me out of the way, but they could ask me to ask me on the board. And I said, well, isn't that exciting? I'm, I'm going on the board of this company. I go to the first meeting. And if you're in a corporate meeting, a big public corporate meeting, you have a board of directors. There's nine directors. And one, the, the director leading it would have been there for 29 years. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't made money in five years. Mm -hmm. Right. So the board members at Park, Ohio, had nothing to crow about. You couldn't find us anywhere, though. All our companies were separate. They were independent. They were small companies and small communities. But I had tremendous cash flow. Okay. And because you were private, yeah. all that information wasn't out there Absolutely. for them to look up. Absolutely. We were just, in essence, just in the background where we wanted to be. I didn't think of, I didn't see any advantage in making the name Crawford a household name. I'm not interested. I was interested in being successful, right, and it's, making sure that my employees came with me. And the first board meeting go in the public arena. It's you know, go, I'm excited now. I'm down to Union Club. I'm in my first board meeting. I'm I'm sitting there and I say, don't say a word for the first meeting. Mm -hmm. So I didn't say a word for the first meeting. But they were talking about doing some really additional dumb things with trying to solve their problem. Wait, the board, the first board meeting you went to for Park, Ohio, was at the Union Club? Yeah. So yeah, you couldn't even tell them you were a Catholic or they would have thrown you out of the Union well, Club. Back then. I, I, let's put it, they had, had a lot of little X's after my name or something, <laughs> you know. Of course, it didn't bother me. But anyway, I arrived there and I listened. So I go back to the next meeting, which is you know, another four months later, another, they mm -hmm. lose another three, four million dollars. And I come with some ideas and so forth. So I, I present the ideas and, you know, and I said, I'd like to make a motion that we look at addressing this issue with the United Auto Workers. About time. You know, I think I could be a good spokesman for the company in getting that resolved on both sides. I look around the room. You can make a motion, but you need a second to bring it to a vote. Did you get a second? No seconds. It was it was it was deafening. For the next three meetings, same thing. 
I make a motion to make do something, they ignore me, and they, I can never get a vote. Mm. They don't want me to get a vote because they don't want to be on record for being stupid or continuing their past. So how could you ever get past that? One by one, I think the, the board members started to think I made a little more sense. So under the pressure of that, they uh, decided to put the company up for sale. I said, I can't be any luckier here. No one's going to buy this thing. So you hire Solomon Brothers out of New York, of course, a big firm. They come in, get a big book. They put it up for sale. And they wanted $9 a share. They couldn't get nine. They couldn't get seven. They couldn't get five. They tried for six months everywhere. To, and finally, the guy appointed by the chairman, who had been there like 20-some years, wonderful man, turned out to be a hero almost. Dick Sheets turned out to be a fantastic man. They couldn't sell it. So at the, at the end of one meeting, the guy from the Solomon Brothers comes to me and he says, he said, I know everyone really likes you and we respect you and so forth. And you can have this thing. You can have it at five dollars a share. So they tried to sell Park, Ohio, in its entirety. Right. How long was it on the market before they finally came to you? And six months. Six months. And I said, buy Marsh Allen Industries from me. We have a company. We're making money. We're doing very well. It's on the west side. It's in the business. It's cash flow immediately. It's going to take me a year to turn around the losers. I'm going to get rid of the losers, and I'm going to fix those. My track record says I can do that, and I'm going to bring in cash immediately. So the next time we report earnings, we'll be making money. So Marsh Allen, for you to sell Marsh Allen, which you owned at the time, to sell it to Park, Ohio, was really kind of a little uh, stroke of genius because it set them up to survive for a year or two while you took over and got the company shaped up. Absolutely. It was just that simple. That sounds simple. It is simple. But I want to stop right there because here is what I think is a great example of entrepreneurship. An entrepreneur at the best of times is creative. You're kind of uh, come in playing a, your own chess game. Where you see, okay, this company is like this, this Remember is like back this. Remember back, back to my mom, what are the other people thinking? Yes. It, they were easy to read what they were thinking. <laughs> right. Get us out of here. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. do we get some money? Okay. What happened from, oh, you know, I have one more thing. I want to back up to something you said a few minutes ago, that you always followed the rules. There are many entrepreneurs who will tell you, and some of them quite successful, but there are many who will tell you, hey, an entrepreneur, sometimes you got to roll the dice. You got to take chances. And tell me how you avoided this. Push comes to shove and you say, hey, don't pay those withholding taxes this month. We need that cash flow for other things. Hey, we'll get to them. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And before you know it, here comes the federal government. You're in big trouble because of the impositions of cash that entrepreneurs sometimes risk too much. And you specifically said, no, you never did that. You always followed the hard rules. How did you manage to avoid taking the, the dangerous risk that many entrepreneurs get caught up in? Well, number one, let's start with the fact that I have one employee that's worked for me for 47 years, okay, who's an accountant, CFO of Crawford, group, which still exists. 
Okay, it didn't go away, Crawford Group. You know, mm-hmm. these things don't go away. Oh, no, we still just, here. Yeah, it, it, it's still there, okay, and it plays a role. I wasn't going to fail because I didn't do something right. I was a risk taker, and I believed in myself, but I did not, you know, tried never, ever, ever to cheat. Fortunately, uh, I ran the business tight enough, and whatever necessary, I got scared. I scared myself a couple times. But generally speaking, I just knew that if it's going to fail, let it fail. It's going to win, let it win. It's very tempting, but you can't can't just do that. You can't go back and recreate it. I'd built the team. I owned the team, but the credit was, and I was the quarterback, but I needed a lot of people to surround me. I needed good guards, good tackles, good things. And I wanted people that want to be part of my dream, okay, and share it. The people that don't want the limelight, that just want to be on the team. So I had a lot at stake other than just money with me. You know, and again, I knew what had happened at Cleveland. I knew again, and I know how easy it was to fail. Very easy to fail. So I just worked harder and, you know, knock on wood and not quite a woodhead, but uh, you just got to believe everyone knows small businesses have income, particularly cash income. And it's always an issue about paying the taxes. Or cash flow, cash yeah, flow. Cash. I am a cash flow freak. I built the company understanding cash flow. I still That's understand. one of your secrets, isn't yeah, it? It is my secret. Always yeah. keep the cash flow going. That's right. Jumping to uh, something in 2009, uh, eight and nine. Remember the bad time, the economy? Sure. Yeah, the sure. crisis. We had uh, Park, Ohio, and it was going great. But we had a lot of debt and so forth. And in 08, late 08, I said to Matthew and got all the top people, and it was in November of that year, and I said, look, I don't like the way this economy feels. Yeah, I just don't like oh, it. Oh, you it, did? It, you it, said it. that before everything blew up? Yeah, in 08. Mm-hmm. And in, around Thanksgiving, and we talk about this in Park, Ohio all the time, in, in, in our culture, we talk about this. Mm-hmm. If we come back here and it's in 09, and this looks like it's going to get worse. I want to make some very, very aggressive decisions here about our payroll and our growth and everything else. We might have overexpanded. So we're responsible for all these people and these companies we bought. So we come back. Sure enough, it starts. <whistles> 09 was a rough deal for everyone. I called everyone together, Matt and everything else and all the key people. Everyone making $50,000 or more in Cleveland. I mean, in Park, Ohio, is going to take a 10% cut in wages. Across the board, no exceptions. If anyone thinks that they had a bonus from the in 08 that it was earned, we're not paying it. We owe it to you. Mm-hmm. And one person sat in that room and said to me, you lose half your employees. I said, what half of the employees are you talking about? He said, in my company, when, and I'm the largest division, I'm going to lose half my employees. I said, Andy, no, you won't lose half your employees. I said, but let me ask you a question. Do you have a better idea? If you have a better idea, I'll listen to it. But let me ask you a question. In a better idea is you selecting who gets to go and doesn't get to go. We have to do this, and we're going to save the company and make sure we don't get in trouble. I don't want to pick people. I want everyone to share the same, including myself and everyone else. So that's what's happening. There is no choice. The decision has been made. How many employees did you lose? None. <laughs> everyone understood that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it takes a little chutzpah to say, hey, that's the way it's going to be. And, of course, there was a risk. There's always a risk to making management decisions. 
And there's always a risk when things are not going so good. Your responsibility is to save the jobs, save the people, and they'll back you every single time. I've never asked employees to do something, okay, that they didn't do it. In County at Ohio, we have a plan that we've had there. We've had like 40 years there. We employed 250 people, 280 people. They're still there. Still there. Mm-hmm. And, and they're an example, or all our companies are an example. Just think of people going to get, get up in the morning, and I'm repeating myself, I, I am, it's, it's that important. They go into the office. They come into work at 6.30, 7 o'clock, and punch a time card in the process of becoming ambassador. When I was in the Foreign Relations Committee, you know, I was supposed to have been kicked around by a senator from New Jersey about things, and he happened to stumble into that category about how do I treat, what type of background, what kind of respect you have for your employees. I mean, he couldn't have asked me a better question. It was like a layup <laughs> shot. No one on the court, I could make it. Just like, the, the bottom line is that's what an entrepreneur is being about. You have the crisis, you have decisions, you have to make them. But who are you thinking about? You're thinking about the responsibility of, of everyone. Mm-hmm. And I just can't, I, I just love the idea that, you know, our part of our responsibility is they punch the time clock, they work, they go out, they punch the time, and they go home to their families, nice life, they go to watch football games, they go to the local high school, they go to the colleges and so forth. The only way to make sure is they have that job, okay? Mm-hmm. That's the partnership. And I'll tell you, the things that kill companies and have killed companies, and a lot of companies I bought at very good prices got killed by the management and the owners. That's where it is. It's not on the factory floor. They just want jobs. They want the responsibility. They do not. They have to depend on me not being dumb. Hey, that's a nice uh, picture of community around a company. And when you refer to uh, your company in Conneaut that's been there for so many years, and you have a special bond with that uh, company because of long ago, your first relation with Conneaut. But you make me think that the way you paint the picture that so many of the people work at your company and then they go out and do the usual things you do in a community in a kind of a small, Absolutely. small, it's a city, but they it's don't like small town. They don't have a movie theater, you know, they, no, uh, but uh, they go to football games and right. they have that's, picnics. That's normal. That's life. And, and all of it is based on their jobs at the company. That's what makes everything possible. So really, Conneaut is really kind of Crawford town. Isn't it? Well, it's not Crawford Down. It's Connie out of Ohio. It's been a good partnership. It's always a fight in the type of businesses that we're in. We're in tough businesses, high labor content, automobile businesses. It's a rough and tumble business. My, Matthew kids me some say, why did you pick manufacturing? I says, that's the only thing I could get started in, you know. So uh, from my background and the background a lot of people I'm trying to talk to through this uh, work we're doing here, like I was, I still accept the responsibility, and I love the responsibility. I, you know, I, I live with it. You know, and I'm a competitor, and I expect to win. I expect my companies to win. I expect my people to win. Six chapters in, and I think we need a break from the business talk. How about a little basketball? In chapter seven, Ed Crawford recounts his time on the basketball court in Cleveland, across the country, and beyond. It's a healthy exercise, great camaraderie, and good fun. But it's more than just that for the astute entrepreneur. Tune in to Aspire Chapter 7, Lessons on the Court. I'm Josh Booth. Thanks for listening.